0: Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Group, prohibited by law. See Terms and Conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and today, what it's like when your toxic boss is a woman. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing that we cannot get off of our minds. And today you've got me, Daisy Rosario, Senior Supervising Producer of Audio here at Slate. And today I'll be talking to Noelle Crooks, author of the new novel, Under the Influence. Now, I don't know about you, but I have worked at more than one toxic workplace. They tend to have a lot in common. So as I get older and more experienced, I've gotten better at both recognizing the signs and asking questions that help me see any hidden red flags before getting pulled in. But one thing that has thrown a wrench into these situations, especially over the last 10 years, is when the toxic workplaces are led by women. Yes, I am talking about the hashtag girl boss era and the way that some of the very women pushing the concept were later shown to be toxic bosses themselves. Think Sophia Amorusa, founder of the website Nasty Gal. She took what started as an eBay store and turned it into a hugely popular online store. She literally wrote a book called hashtag girl boss. Then, Netflix made a show based on it. So what exactly is your business? You know how people flip houses? Well, I flip clothes. Boom! Dollar, dollar bills, y'all! But not long before the show was released, Nasty Gal had to file for bankruptcy. Then the Wall Street Journal put out a report that featured interviews with 10 former employees talking about the company's toxic culture. Or think of an influencer like Rachel Hollis, author of the best-selling book Girl, Wash Your Face, who built her brand on relatability. BuzzFeed reported on Hollis attributing well-known quotes from women like Eleanor Roosevelt and Maya Angelou to herself online. And Hollis blamed her employees. Eventually, she would go viral on TikTok in the bad way after a commenter called her unrelatable for talking about having a woman clean her toilets. Hollis responded with a rant. What is it about me that made you think I want to be relatable? No, sis. Literally everything I do in my life is to live a life that most people can't relate to. Most people won't work this hard. Most people won't get up at 4 a.m., most people won't fail publicly again and again just to reach the top of the mountain. Literally every woman I admire in history was unrelatable. If my life is relatable to most people, I'm doing it wrong. Hollis would go on to blame her team again. Author Noelle Crooks actually worked for Rachel Hollis for a time. Crooks's new book Under the Influence is fiction, but clearly takes its inspiration from real life. It follows a young woman named Harper Cruz, who's trying to make it as a writer in New York City, but keeps running into a fading publishing industry and can't seem to get anywhere. In need of a job, she gets the chance to work for a popular influencer in a role that allows her to write and also do a lot of other work. Crooks does a great job painting a picture of a young woman who's doing what she can to pursue her dream, but because she needs to pay her bills and is trying to stay somewhat related to her chosen field, gets charmed by a charismatic boss who uses empowering language and her status as a successful woman to take advantage of her employees. We're going to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, I will be talking to Noelle Crooks, author of the new book, Under the Influence. That's after the break. Waves listeners. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes too. We've been very busy lately with an episode on the passing of Senator Dianne Feinstein, a discussion on why doctors need to stop using the phrase incompetent cervix among others. And we've also got a golden bachelor recap every week. Subscribe to the Waves wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode and maybe throw us a nice rating while you're there. Welcome back to The Waves. I am joined now by author of her debut novel, Under the Influence. Please welcome Noelle Crooks. Noelle, thank you so much for being here.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: So, Noelle, I really enjoyed your book. It was a great read. It was funny, frustrating. I was having flashbacks to my own experiences of working for let's say, powerful yet toxic women. Tell us a little bit about how this book kind of first came about for you.
1: Well, first, thank you so much. I pride myself in having people go through an emotional roller coaster while reading. So I, <laughs> I think <did. laughs> sounds successful in that front. But I kind of always knew I wanted to write a book about toxic workplaces and just a work-centric novel, especially... Being sort of victim to hustle culture in my early 20s, it was something I was really passionate about. And so I wanted to write a book about what it's like to work for a woman that is kind of worse than Miranda Priestly, I would say, in terms of just... creating this toxic workplace that on the outside looking in looks so fun and looks like those amazing cult-like type of work environments that we see so often on LinkedIn or Instagram. But when you peek behind the the curtain, it's just none of those things and, and more. And so that's really kind of where the inspiration came from is just looking at social media and influencers and a lot of these toxic workplaces that, you know, in 2020 got exposed um, and kind of diving into that to create under the influence.
0: I think like the way that you build Harper's journey into like why she would accept some of the things, how she gets pulled into some of the things, why this particular role feels so exciting and like such a, a big opportunity, like felt so realistic to what it is to, you know, I think not probably just pursue a career in online media, but like media at large. Um, you know, we know that publishing houses are closing, magazines closing, newspapers closing. Like it's been tough out there this last 10, 15 years, especially if you are someone who wants to get into being a writer or any of those things, like the jobs that existed to help build you up to those roles have disappeared. And that's a very realistic part of your novel. I mean, is that something that you experienced yourself?
1: Yeah. So when thinking about Harper's character, I mean, I really wanted her to feel relatable. And so Mm -hmm. to me, that looked like someone who is ambitious and excited and to your point, wanting to sort of start their career and start something bigger who... She really feels like she's meant for something greater, but she's not somebody who has sort of a life set up or a background where her parents might have, you know, money set aside and she's very much just a working class sort of woman in her early 20s. And so to me, that's definitely something I could relate to in my early 20s. And even before that, I always say that my favorite time in elementary school was the time I got to be line leader. And that sort of just (laughs) fueled this never ending teacher's pet energy that I have. And so definitely in my early 20s, you know, it was the same time that girl boss culture started to really come to the surface. And so when you think about somebody who has this kind of teacher's pet energy, and then you put them out into a workforce with also all of these narratives online and in media that say, oh, be a girl boss, you know, own your life, do all these things, work so hard. For me, it really just felt like this perfect storm. It was everything, you know, I really ate it up. I wanted to have the mug that says, you know, she can, she will, she does, all of that kind of thing. A lot of kind of Harper's journey are I would say, lessons and things that I maybe reflected on in my early 20s and things that I hope readers can relate to or maybe they're reminiscent of a time where they've been in a position like Harper or they've been down on their luck and really trying to take a leap and making some significant risk to do so.
0: I think that what part of what felt so true about it is that you are writing about you know, this ambitious teacher's pet character, but also, like, they really do need a job. They really do need an income. They really do need an opportunity. And then for the opportunity to present itself, and it's not just good pay, but it feels like there's this larger mission. There's this larger, like, ideal that you agree with, and that is part of what's pulling you in. And I think that that's such a true part of a lot of, Toxic work cultures, whether it's, you know, girl bossing, which we are going to continue to talk about today. But, you know, you hear the same thing about like nonprofits, right? Like people get pulled yep. in because they're like passionate about whatever the mission of that nonprofit is. And then it's like used as cover in a way to underpay people and work them crazy hours.
1: Definitely. There's a lot of companies, and what I've come to find even since the book has been out, people have reached out to me and have have shared their Harper story or Mm -hmm. maybe a time when they've been in her shoes. And a lot of the commonalities I have found are that, these toxic workplaces generally are not the ones where you are in a cubicle, you know, wearing business formal clothes. They generally are the ones that have those flashy and sexy mission statements online. They're the ones that have filled Instagrams with smiling employees and all of these, you know, fun type of benefits and things like that. And so that was definitely something that I wanted to have in terms of Harper's experience at the greenhouse.
0: Yeah. One of the moments that really, like really hit me <laughs> hard <laughs> was there's a lot of dancing in the office um in the in the book and i literally worked once at a place where yeah our our boss was profiled and in the profile you know they got into talking about like there's a little dance party in the office once a week and i was like oh god it's too real and i'm sure that that probably resonates with a lot of people particularly the kind of jobs that people would have had in the last, again, 10, 15 years if they were pursuing media specifically.
1: Yeah. And that's one of my favorite scenes to write is that, you know, first moment where Harper is part of this dance party, not just because a dance party in an office is just like kind of fun and silly anyhow, but because when she's looking around the room, she's seeing these colleagues that are not just kind of like swaying back and forth doing it like they are so excited. It's like they're drunk at a wedding and they're so invested. And, and I think that is part of the fun of the book with Harper is having her look at everyone and see really smart, really capable people who are just falling into this toxic workplace and sort of I would say drinking the Kool-Aid. yeah, And so, and I think it's easy when you get into a toxic workplace, when you might walk in a little bit skeptical, but when you look left and right and the people that you are sharing a desk with or the people that are around the office and everybody is so invested and is really there, it can really become intoxicating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like for the last few years, like we've, you know, heard a lot more about like cults and documentaries and stuff, right? And the overlap and the behavior is like wild. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, we even have the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid. And I've had, I've worked at so many places where, you know, there was like the conversation of, like, do you drink the Kool-Aid? Or, like, you kind of have to drink the Kool-Aid a little bit to work here. Like, you've got to accept some of this stuff. And the similarities, in particular, around smart, capable people being the ones pulled in, and then as new people arriving, looking around and going, oh, well, if they're here, it can't be that bad. If they're buying into this, it must actually be fine. And then kind of using that as a way to quiet the part of you that is, like, aware that maybe something is not quite right, just seems so real and true to, you know, both the toxic workplaces and all the cults we see in these documentaries.
1: Absolutely. And cult research is a lot of what I did when kind of conceptualizing the book and writing the book and having Charlotte use a lot of these cult like tactics to really charm her employees and get them on board. I will also say hearing from readers, a commonality I found with these cult-like workplaces are the bonds that you make with your coworkers. workers yeah. I have found they can be so, so strong because you have a different type of relationship because you're often going through things that are a little bit crazy or dance parties or just toxic behavior that, to your point, people just learn to accept. And so when you are in those types of environments and, of course, you need someone to relate to, you need to vent to someone, you kind of turn to your peers and you're able to create different types of relationships with colleagues than maybe you would in a really healthy environment where you you know, log off at 6 p.m. and there's no funny business.
0: Yeah. How much do you think that, you know, like just age and everything also, you know, when you have young people like pursuing their dream, they have got a little bit more energy, they can probably work a little longer, they're meeting new people. It just feels like that's such a big part of why some of these people are able to be taken advantage of so quickly.
1: Yeah, I think age plays a lot and just also life experience. I think it also there's a narrative out there of this is a rite of passage sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that younger people will have that mentality in a toxic workplace of, okay, I'm kind of just putting in the years that I need to in order to get to, you know, whatever goal that I have rather than thinking, you know, there's a, environment out there that is healthy, that you can still be dedicating and being passionate about your career and you know, not going home with a panic attack or not having these sort of dramatic events happening at work. I do think younger people are told by media and told even by people older that, you, know, you gotta put in your years because that's how it goes and maybe five, 10, 15 years down the road, you'll get a nice job. But until then, this is what work is.
0: God. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. All right, we're going to take a break here. But if you want to hear more from Noelle and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're talking about how to recover from a toxic work environment, something we both have a lot of experience in. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com forward slash the waves plus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Daisy Rosario, and I'm talking to Noelle Crooks, author of the novel Under the Influence. The cover of your book describes it as Devil Wears Prada meets influencer culture. And I this brought up a lot for me, having worked for some powerful women in the past, women who I admired in some ways. But I feel like these powerful women were really able to use aspects of their womanhood against us as employees, right? Like especially female employees. And that feels very true in your book as well. So why did you want to write about that?
1: I think to your point, there's something different about working for a powerful woman. And I think even in today's age, there There's so much to unpack, right? You know, expectations of women, both in an office, outside of an office. But for me, I really wanted to have the antagonist, if you will, be a woman because I wanted her to kind of paint this picture of having it all. And that's one of the biggest themes in the book is what it means for a woman to have it all. And as we see with Charlotte, she is you know, the perfect boss, has this amazing company that's just thriving, has so many people who want to work for her, while also being an amazing mother and an adoring wife and all of these different aspects. And so I wanted to have that come into play because we just don't really see that with men. The expectations we have for men are different, especially who they are in an office versus who they are at home. Nobody really pays much attention to that versus women. It's sad that today's age, women have so much expectation on them. And so I wanted to show that side to Charlotte. And I wanted to show even a little bit of empathy for her, because as we can see her through her journey, she is putting so much pressure on herself to really show up as the perfect influencer, the perfect mom, perfect wife. And there was just so much to unpack there in terms of even how people show up online that I just couldn't see that sort of narrative taking place with a man.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there obviously are plenty of male influencers and there's a lot of content that they do, but it's just so different than some of the tracks that we see fairly consistently um, for women working in online media, let's say, right? Like, they almost always have started as a mommy blogger who then a couple years in, because the content was changing, have to pivot to something else. And then uh, maybe a year or two later, kind of pivot to something else. And, you know, we see that just kind of being something that is is now true for a lot of women who have chosen that media route. And the book stays very true to that as well.
1: I really wanted to paint kind of this image where everything's perfect online and then you just see it all for what it is behind the screen which is such an important theme for me because I wanted Harper to see the duality and just like the juxtaposition of what she was seeing online versus what she was seeing behind the scenes and especially with women it's just a different playing field online expectations of what women look like expectations of how women act. And then on top of that, add, you know, being a CEO of a company and trying to juggle that. It doesn't mean that Charlotte's behavior is excusable by any means, but it just gives her a human aspect that I wanted to create.
0: I think there's also something that is uh, true of the, the characters in the book. And that that felt very true as well is the way that I think because of the admiration, like as a young woman towards this woman that you're working for, when that woman that you're working for says that they're going to look out for you or that they're going to be a champion for you. I think that that is taken a lot more seriously by the young women on the receiving end of that, because it feels more believable than just, a you know, maybe a man saying that to you or maybe you assume if a man says it to you that he's going to expect something sexual down the line or something. But when a woman says it to you, it feels much more like, oh yeah, they see me as the next them. Exactly. And that
1: is exactly what was happening with the characters. And even Charlotte kind of creating this gold star system of favoritism inside of the office. I think it plays such an interesting dynamic with the other women in the office, because we get to see this competition that women so often are in because of outside factors. So in this case, we have Charlotte who is kind of picking a favorite person, um, flavor of the week, if you will, to, to really love bomb and create all this favoritism. And then that ends up being a divide for some of the other colleagues. And even though they have these strong friendships, it's interesting when You are in this toxic work environment that's so intoxicating and you're the favorite of the week and you're looking left and right at your colleagues that are supposed to be your friends. And then suddenly there's a little bit of tension there.
0: I mean, the vibe, it's always like school meets like the powerful woman is kind of acting more like a mom in some ways. And, you know, I think like we've heard kind of from all genders, really, that there's plenty of workplaces that are like, we're a family and they try to really like weaponize the family thing. I even jokingly said to one of my teams here uh, recently, I was like, I promise to never call us a family as a means to just try <laughs> to get you to do more stuff that you shouldn't be doing. Um, but I think I, you know, you, you can hear that in all kinds of workplaces. But I think especially with women led workplaces, it ends up just even more dangerous, I guess. I'm, I'm I'm almost struggling to find a way to kind of put it because it does, I think, tug at something a little deeper sometimes.
1: Definitely. I have heard from so many readers that their toxic workplace was described as being like a family. And so I can't speak for all workplaces, but I will say if you are applying for jobs right now and on the careers page it says, (laughs) we're like a family, I would perhaps steer clear of that place. But yeah, I do think it plays a different type of emotion. And especially for women, I think hearing that you're going to be in a workplace that feels like family. You're seeing people who are having all of these bonds and being a woman in the workplace is hard enough already, especially, you know, in the book, we get to talk about diversity and inclusion and performative diversity and all of those different aspects. And so I think trying to tug at your emotions during the interview process or through some of these workplace cultures by saying, Oh, we work like a family. I think it becomes very manipulative.
0: I mean, the manipulation is strong. I'm curious, uh, kind of the reaction. And you know, you mentioned that you were hearing a lot of stories, they're kind of Harper stories. Um, But yeah, I would love to get a sense of how much are people online that you're hearing back from and reviews and such relating to the character.
1: I have been overwhelmed, really. So many people, I've even specifically on my book tour as well, getting to talk to people in person. Oh, gosh, So many, yeah, yeah, so many people have told me their Harper story, or they've told me when they've worked for a Charlotte, or kind of what their Charlotte used to do to them. And so that's what I think is part of the magic of the book, is even if you've never worked in a media company, even if you've never moved or taken risk with your jobs, it's rare to not have ever worked in a toxic work environment. Most people have. Most people have had a bad boss. Most people have had tension in the workplace. And so what I've come to find is that Under the Influence truly is this kind of universal story and universal message that regardless of industry, so many people can relate to.
0: I think it's very rare to not at least have encountered. A toxic workplace at some point. Um, I think how far you get pulled in probably depends on a lot of factors. But I do feel like that is part of what feels so insidious about these situations where it's like powerful women doing it because they do tend to then leverage those like personal parts of both their experience and the experience of their employees if they know about them, if they can learn about them against them in a way that wouldn't necessarily be true in like a generally toxic space.
1: Definitely. I think there's this level of trying to be relatable that women at the top tend to try to instill in their other women employees of, you know, I'm just like you. And and we see that a lot with Charlotte, especially the moments where it's just her and Harper, where she is sort of having a lot of conversation about similarities between them and a lot of conversations about, oh, if this was a man, people wouldn't be saying these things about me and just trying to be extremely relatable. And I think that all of that just plays in into manipulation and gaslighting and lying and a lot of those themes that we see in the book.
0: I mean, I think if this was a man, nobody would be saying this is both something that tends to be used by the powerful woman and becomes this like mantra for the people, you know, working for that person who are like trying to make it through the day. Like they, they have to believe it for themselves as well.
1: I have seen that a lot. And I think that is one of the most common, uh, phrases from people who <laughs> are often leading out toxic workplaces is, you know, if this was a man, nobody would be questioning it. And, uh, yeah, that's definitely something that I wanted to have in the book, because I think we've all kind of heard that at some point, whether we've read it or have experienced it. There's a lot of women out there using that uh, using that phrase.
0: Yeah, it's funny too. like to go back to the devil wears Prada for a moment, which you know, we all know is supposed to be like a stand in for Anna Wintour is like that is not someone who's trying to be relatable, like Anna Wintour, not try to be relatable, has not uh, ever tried to make us think that she wanted to be relatable. So I I love that movie. I've watched it so many times. Um, but I definitely felt reading your book like, yeah, it was a great kind of pickup from that because that feels so tied to, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, old media, right? Like powerful magazines with all of this money and it comes out once a month and then there's a big, you know, the September issue is the big deal. And it's just a very different workflow than this kind of like online media existence, whether it's working with an influencer or just even thinking of the churn that people who used to work at BuzzFeed would talk about. I mean, it's it's a very different thing. And when you're trying to be relatable and when you're trying to like make yourself seem like, oh, you can be like me, it just ends up pulling an entire different thing. Like the, the stakes are different and also the goals are different because the message there tends to be like, be the best you. And that is really such a big part of your book that really rang true because I feel like I see that message all the time online.
1: I think that narrative of, of, I'm just like you, you know, look at me, I'm wearing sneakers. I'm so relatable. All of that is, are are trends that I'm even seeing, you know, on social media. I feel like 10 years ago when the Devil Wears Prada came out, that was such a fun story because the fashion industry in New York just felt so untouchable and just kind of felt like this thing that everyone knew about, everyone knew is kind of toxic or could assume. But with the greenhouse and what we see in today's age, it very much is masked by this um, mission statements, as you put earlier, as this relatability, as you, know, you could be just like me. Oh, I started at the bottom too and hustled my way to the top. And so all of those things are things that we see nowadays, which in my opinion, are actually much more dangerous than maybe even what we saw in the Devil Wears Prada.
0: It feels so true to the way like media has changed in general, like if you're pursuing this kind of work, whether you want to work in publishing, or you want to work in journalism, or you want to any of these things that are, you know, can all fall under the umbrella of media, like, the actual ground that those things live on has shifted so much. And so, yeah, I'm sure that, you know, working for Anna Wintour would still obviously be very exciting, still a high profile job, but there's not the chances of those kinds of things exist far less. Whereas this world of kind of online content and influencers and working for them, I mean, it can be so spread out and You know, it seems like you could be like so separated from the people in your life and both in your book. And I think in the reality of a lot of people who work in like deeply toxic workplaces now with the Internet where you can be connected all the time and get texted at like two in the morning and things like that, like it it really does feel like more dangerous in a way.
1: I feel like when you're applying for a job, let's say at Vogue or in media or in fashion, you kind of already know it's gonna what you're gonna get yourself into. You're kind of like I'm aware of the risk. I'm aware of the reputation of this industry, and I think what is interesting is so many toxic workplaces are really more of these fun startups with, you know, 200 or less people who are working for them, and they're so much harder to to actually spot. And so. I feel like that's even why places like Glassdoor have had so much success is because you look on a job description, you see all these amazing things, all these amazing perks and values and mission statements, and you're getting yourself psyched up. You go to Glassdoor, you do a little research and you're like, oh, wow, every single employee here absolutely hates their life. There is something that is not adding up here. It's not mathing here. So Yeah, I do find that so interesting. And I hope when people read it, they can feel this sort of refresh of a lot of uh, things that they can find relatable or things that they can see in today's age.
0: Well, again, the debut novel from Noelle Crooks is Under the Influence. I really enjoyed reading it. And Noelle, thank you so much for joining me today on The Waves. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth and Vic Whitley-Berry. I'm senior supervising producer of audio here at Slate. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at, the waves at Slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place.